0: and enter promo code FTM400. That's FTM for firing the man 400 to get your first $400 in reimbursements commission free. How much money does Amazon owe you?
1: Welcome everyone to the Firing the Man podcast, a show for anyone who wants to be their own boss. If you sit in a cubicle every day and know you are capable of more, then join us. This show will help you build a business and grow your passive income streams in just a few short hours per day. And now your hosts, serial entrepreneurs, David Shomer and Ken Wilson.
0: Welcome, everyone, to the Firing the Man podcast. On today's episode, we are joined by Jacob Erdy. Jacob has 20-plus years of experience being self-employed. In the early 2000s, after leaving a computer manufacturing company, he went on to start his own in-home computer repair business and has been forced to pivot several times. Currently, his focus is on acquiring e-commerce businesses through a vertical acquisition strategy. Ken met Jacob in the Rhodium Mastermind, and we have had the pleasure to share Jacob's vast experience with you today. Welcome to the show, Jacob.
1: Hey, thank you. Great being here. A fan of the show.
0: Thank you. So first things first, can you give the audience a snapshot of your background, previous jobs and experiences?
1: Uh, Yeah, and I'll kind of start what I'll call my first real business. And so I just graduated from college and it was an associate's degree in computer networking and information technology. Uh, with that degree, I did nothing the first year. And so essentially right after graduating though, a roommate of mine, his parents owned a janitorial business. And kind of we were talking about businesses in general and starting something up together. And we ended up starting up a, a janitorial and maintenance company uh, that also did construction cleanup. And that company had only lasted for about six months, but that was like my first real EIN type company that started up and it ended in flames in terms of, yeah, we had some some sales numbers and weren't necessarily bad there, but ultimately it was a very bad partnership. There was some drug use in there and, you know, other things that come about from that. That was uh, my first experience of having a real business and partnering with somebody. And after that, I was like, I just swore off uh, doing any business partnerships. I was like, I'll never do a business partnership again and ended up moving on. And I ended up getting a job, leaving that company. And I ended up getting a job at Compaq and Compaq does computer manufacturer, then bought out by Hewlett Packard (HP), and HP outsources all of their all their manufacturing. And then so, when I found out the HP bought Compact, we had somebody coming in that day from Foxconn, and Foxconn at that time wasn't really known. It's one of the largest companies in the world, but at that time, nobody really knew of them. And you know, it was clear that that's who they were going to be contracting to. So I kind of just knocked on the guy's door, said, "Hey, I heard you're hiring," and he's like, "Yes, we are." And I jumped ship right away from HP over over to Foxconn. And from there, I ended up having to move out to Indiana for about a year and a half. I was a, a computer engineer over there, did a bit of work for them. During that time, my wife got accepted to veterinary school in Fort Collins, Colorado. So I ended up moving to Fort Collins, Colorado. I got a job there. It only lasted 30 or 45 days. I was a supervisor to a computer repair company. It's a big, big electronic store chain that's very popular in the U.S. And But for me, it was the corporate life and I dealt with a lot of that already with inner fighting in Compaq and HP and people like stealing each other's work and trying to justify their job to stay employed. There's just so much politics that go in, into, you know, corporate America in general. And it just wasn't for me. It was the only job I ever really walked out on, but I just, I I ended up walking out. I was just like, you know, I'm just going to start my own company. So I went home, I started my own company, uh, Brainbox Computer Solutions, you know, got an ad in the yellow book. It was going to come out, like three months later and then my my wife comes home and i tell my wife like hey I just started my own computer repair company and I quit my job and you know her, her response was well can you get your job back so it was like well no but th- that's when we sat down and we talked about it. as long as I could pay the bills I was good to go and as long as I could pay and meet my commitments to help support our family we we're good so you know once i had that blessing I, I was able to move forward and you know whenever you start a company I wouldn't recommend just quitting a job and having no income and starting a company, I much prefer like the chicken entrepreneurial approach of where you keep your job, but then you start something on the side and let that income build up a far easier way of doing it. But I was kind of thrown in there. And so I ended up getting a job carpet cleaning. It was a contract job. So I'd go out and I'd carpet clean and I'd carpet clean a home. And then, you know, I'd go into the truck, I, I'd switch out from my scrubs, uh, kind of like Superman, right? Put on, you know, something semi nice and then go do an in-home computer repair job and then switch back into scrubs, do carpet cleaning. I did that uh, for close to a year, and roughly about that point, all I, my computer repair business was slowly gaining more and more steam. And all I really needed was just four hundred more dollars, just four hundred more dollars, and I'd be able to quit carpet cleaning because carpet cleaning is a lot of hard work. It is and little pay, hard work and. Yeah, and, you know, I just need 400 more dollars. And and ultimately, that's where I discovered uh, digital marketing, affiliate marketing, I should say, uh, promoting other people's products and services and getting paid to do that. And then AdSense and things like that. It didn't take too long. I bought a f- few courses. Some were good, some are bad. But over the following six months, ultimately, like month six, I ended up earning $100. And then month seven, I earned 200 And month eight, you know, I earned 400 And I was able to fully quit the carpet cleaning gig. and. Slowly over the course of the next year or two, the digital marketing aspect of the business started earning more than my in-home computer repair business, which was taking up full-time work for me at that point. Uh, with my wife closer to graduating from college, I knew we'd be moving, and so I ended up selling off the in-home computer repair business and just focusing full-time on doing affiliate marketing. And there, I built up over over several years. I built up a really, really nice income, and had had nice income coming in. I had a few different tech startups in between on that too. That that I tried my hand at. Overall, at the very peak, I had close to like 30K net. That would have been the actual cash flow. Now, keep in mind, most of the money that I made, I ended up putting back into the business. I did buy a number of content businesses uh, as well, or, or content websites, I should say. And then ultimately, one day, I woke up, and even though I had, you know, 100 different niches, 150 different websites, you know, I woke up and Google said, Jacob, we hate you and we hate all your websites. And over the course of about about six months, I saw all my, all my income, you know, from 30 K net, to about 2K net. And keep in mind, I didn't stack a lot of funds either. I was putting most of it back into the business. I was living really, really frugal. And, you know, that was that was a really hard lesson because I thought I was diversified. I thought, no, look, I'm in all these different niches. I have these these websites on different hosts. I I thought I was doing what was what Google wanted as well. That was the other real shock. And yeah, I was gaming the system a little bit like everybody does. There's always gaming the system if you're doing any kind of SEO. But, you know, ultimately the tables turned and I learned that, oh, no, I really only had one customer, and that was Google. And when Google said, Jacob, we don't like you anymore, my, my business was gone. And with that, I kind of swore off doing just organic traffic. I said, no, you have to be able to run paid traffic to the offers. That way it won't die on you, right? If I can make money by running paid traffic to something and arbitrage that difference, uh, then, then it's a business. And so I kept doing what I was doing there of, yeah, some content, but focusing more on affiliate offers and running affiliate business. But over time, you know, I kind of quickly realized, I say quickly, but it was like a three or four year journey. And I had multiple different startups again that I tried, you know, some bigger swings for the fences. I kind of learned that everything I was doing, I was building on quicksand. And so no matter what, you always get kicked off of affiliate offers. They always go down. You don't control it. You don't own the customer. You don't own any of that. And so essentially what I was doing is I was building income and it was a good lifestyle. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, I had zero customers. I had zero issues really to deal with. And so that lifestyle aspect was nice, but there was nothing that I could sell at the end of the day. For me, it was important. And this is roughly about, you know, four or five years ago, I I realized after, after another startup I had went under, I kind of realized that, no, I I need to find something else. And ultimately that's when I turned to just focusing more on e-commerce and starting e-commerce or purchasing e-commerce websites and and to go down that path—that's kind of a, a big roundabout way to uh, where I'm at now.
2: Sure. So, no. Thanks for you know sharing all that, and you know I think David and I always chat about all of the times we have to make pivots and lessons learned, and and. We learned, I think the most in, in our failures. And, but if you're never taken at bats, you're never, you're never going to have those lessons learned. So that's awesome. Sounds like, you know, you've had a, a wealth of experience with pivots and lessons learned. And so Jacob, I know that you're a, a Google ads expert. So I'd like to pivot into this a little bit specifically for e-commerce. Can you speak to like what's working? regarding Google ads for e-commerce in 2022?
1: Yeah. And and abs- absolutely. The, the biggest thing that's working for most is going to be PLA ads, So product label ads. So absolutely, especially on the e-commerce end. And so that's where a lot of my focus goes into is, is just ensuring that, Hey, you know, is my merchant feed, how, how do those products look? Are they presentable? Are they good? And then running a PLA ads And ultimately, the PLA is going to get you a lot cheaper CPC than, let's say, a keyword search ad is going to get you.
2: Okay. And what what is a PLA ad?
0: If you want tips and strategies on how to start, grow, and monetize your business online, check out the Digital Revolution podcast with Eli Adams. We interview digital experts from around the world that share their personal stories. They talk about what they're currently working on and where they see the future going. But most importantly, they share tactics in their specific area of expertise with the hope of helping you improve your digital presence online. You can listen to the Digital Revolution podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, or simply click on the link in the show notes below.
1: Yeah, so the product label ads are going to be the product ads that you see. So if you were to type in, let's say, you know, red violins or something like that in Google, you're going to see those six or several ads that are up on top all showing products. And those are going to be the PLA ads.
0: Now, have you found any trends in terms of like either types of products or price points or maybe sizes of products that tend to perform better with Google ads than than others?
1: Not necessarily there, but the more margin you have on the product that you're promoting the more you can take stabs at de- doing different things. And so a great example would be, you know, a recent website that we purchased, waiters.com. So think fishing waiters and hunting waiters and stuff like that. There, we have really, really good margins on. And, and it's a higher price point, but I could also spend $30, 40 $50 to acquire a customer. Whereas another website that I have, modelcars.com, great example. So that, that's a website that we acquired here not too long ago. And on that one, the margins are horrendous. I can't make it profitable, except for I found one little niche inside there that I've been able to make profitable and make some money on. But because there just isn't a whole lot of profit margin, it's really, really hard. So I can't necessarily say that there's a certain price point of prices that work better. But one thing for sure that I see a lot on Google is is if it's one of those products or services that people absolutely need, then they're more likely to buy. So your conversion rate in general tends to be a little bit higher. And so if you have a product or service that people pretty much have to buy for one reason or another, uh, then your conversion rates in general are going to be better.
0: Okay. Looking forward to twenty twenty three. Are there any strategies that you think will will kind of persist as the Google machine is tends to be ever changing?
1: Yeah, it, it's always evolving, and new new ad things come up. You know, we had expanded ads take over from regular text ads, and then responsive ads because expanded ads are now retired, and and so you know it's it's always going to be an evolving ecosystem. But the one thing is is clear. And that's the, you know, Google's always, always taking over is giving you less and less control and they're putting more and more control into their own hands. And so I think, you know, one of the things to really look at for when you're running Google ads is not just Google ads, but ensuring that your entire funnel is functional. Uh, so, you know, ensuring that, okay, when somebody lands on your website, you're there to capture their email or that your product page, you know, so many e-commerce descriptions for products are really, really, you know, piss poor at the end of the day. And, the, and you know, uh, I'll use the waiters.com example again there. It's a recent acquisition for us, very, very recent, but on a lot of the waiters, they didn't have sizing charts. Like sizing charts weren't there. People, you know, there's already a high return rate in their pair field in general. But if you don't have a sizing chart, like, you know, people are always going to buy the wrong size and then mm-hmm. you're going to end up with all kinds of problems. So just ensuring that your funnel itself, not just Google Ads, but hey, does your landing page convert? Does it look good? Does it answer the, the individual's questions? Are you capturing their email? Are you then remarketing to them? That's very important. And then are you following up with emails, you know, abandoned cart emails and and things like that. So ensuring that your full funnel is there is really important. And then Google as well. If you can niche down, let's say you are running search ads specifically, if you can niche down and ensure, okay, I'm going to set SCAG level ad groups, which is single keyword ad groups. and, And so ensuring that you're going after and theming and sending people not to your home page, but to the search page on your site or the product page on your site that closest matches. Of the keyword, the search intent that people are doing. So sending people to the right destination and then customizing those ads for those specific keywords is going to help give you a higher click-through rate, which is also going to give you a better quality score, which is going to help lower your CPC overall. And you know, through kind of all that together, you'll have a better chance of performing. The other thing is ensuring that you're spending enough money over a long enough period of time. And so by that, I mean, hey, don't just say, okay, I'm going to set my budget to $100 a day for this campaign. And then three days later, you're not making money and shutting it off in frustration. It's like, well, maybe maybe start with $10 on that campaign, see what the keywords are coming in, add in the negative keywords, refine it a little bit. And over time, increase that daily budget and kind of keep those lower CPCs and, and just kind of figure out, hey, what's my ROAS, you know, return on ad spend and, and kind of go from there. So it's starting smaller and then trying to scale out it is an approach and getting very very granular overall that's an approach that that's that's been very successful for me.
2: A couple follow up questions Jacob. One is you had mentioned earlier like you you were struggling with one of your portfolio companies to run profitable ads. Now, and you had mentioned having enough margin to run paid ads. Now, is it enough margin or is it pricing? Like so let's say you're selling, you know, a, a $10 product Versus a hundred dollar product, and you have a thirty percent margin on each. Now, have you, in your experience, like when you have bought businesses and, and you're looking for more? Do you have a criteria on price of the products in the catalog, or is it just margin?
1: No, and it's not necessarily all just margin, but it, it's more margin than price. And a really good example of it is like as an affiliate, I used to push a lot of uh, automotive paint, and there, as an affiliate in general, I'm used to like ten percent commissions. 5% commissions, you, you know, like really low margins. And so getting that stuff profitable can be really, really hard. But if you're honing in and there's a lot of buyer intent and you're going to have a higher conversion rate on it, you just, you don't necessarily know. And so a great example would be one of the companies that we own is a quilt company. We sell a lot of quilt patterns. We're one of the largest quilt pattern companies around are um, getting there anyways. We, we got a few competitors. We got a knockoff steal, but the, you know, there, the average quilt pattern is going to send any sell for anywhere from you know, 10 to $12, but we make some good money. We make some good money because we have a lot of repeat customers because we have that full funnel in place so we can pay a little bit more to acquire a customer. And then even there, because we have good margins on the product and people don't just buy one quilt pattern, they might buy three or four. And, you know, our average order value, for instance, on Google ads is right around $26. And so, with that, we have enough margins for our campaigns to to reach, you know, a five, six, seven ROAS there, uh, which is return on ad spend, which uh, clearly makes us money. And so that's a low, low cost dollar item. And, you know, I'll, I'll spend all day long on that.
2: Yeah, you kind of highlighted that how that full funnel makes an impact on on everything, whether, you're, you know, you're post purchase follow up your upselling at checkout all of those other things combined with it so makes sense. Next question I've got is I know you're you know deep into Google Ads have been for a long time. Do you guys test any other ad platforms like Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Pinterest and if you do do you guys see any gems out there or are they just all noise?
1: Well, no, I every business is going to be different and you know one thing I learned from pushing so many different affiliate offers was you just don't know what's going to work until you try it to kind of test throughout and you know whatever you get good signs of life on, you focus a little bit more on that and keep building it up. Uh, Pinterest, for instance, it's it's taken a while, but for, for Pinterest for the quilting company, that's working really well for us now. we've put some effort in on the organic end. So we have the organic sales going, but we also have a paid sales going too on the paid ads, which if you use the Pinterest attribution model inside Pinterest itself, it's it's pure crap. It, it, it's 100% baloney. The the ROAS that you they say you're getting is false. It's not true. It's based upon people seeing your ad, never clicking or interacting with it. And I know that because we have you know, we use Google Analytics and we have UTM codes. And so we can actually see, hey, what's working, what isn't working there on Pinterest. But yeah, for, for Pinterest, we have that working on our quilting site. Uh, same with Facebook. Facebook, they, the demographic is really, really good. It fits in well with, with that niche and, and it does really, really well. And for other businesses, it can work, but oftentimes people give up way too early. They spend way too much on the front end and just don't give it enough time. I'd rather say, hey, you know what, start at $10, start at $5, start smaller, keep testing different campaigns, keep testing different audiences. Uh, also feed Facebook, you know, do some like campaigns of people who are already like it, and then similar to audiences to your existing customers and your existing customers. Uh, let you know feed Facebook that data of the people that are already visiting your website and who like your ads, and then Facebook will will kind of learn, hey, this is who who you know interacts with these ads, and then over time you'll probably discover an audience or two uh, that works well. And it just it just takes time. Very, very similar to what I said with model cars, where we don't have a huge margins to work with, but still on Google ads, we have some winning campaigns. They're they're never going to scale all that big at this point in time. But, you know, through testing, uh, we, we're able to find some some gems. And, you know, I, I can't speak to TikTok at all just because I I don't understand TikTok. I, I try the app a few times. It's on my phone <laughs> now. I just it, it's just not me. Um, But I'm sure there's, I know there's people out there crushing it. You like, you you just got to test. You don't know what's going to work until until you test.
0: Very nice. Now let's pivot a little bit into e-commerce. How has 2022 been for you and your portfolio companies? Has it been a good year, bad year? What would you say?
1: Overall, I'd say it's been a really, really good year. And so the quilting website, for instance, we've had that now for about 15 months, going on 15 months. And we were able to triple sales there uh, largely throughout 2022. And so that's been, you know, really, really good. That's been a major focus of mine. I I try to spend 80% of our time on what's working best and focus in on that and that that one has definitely been more of a runaway success for us but you know the other sites I have I have a fantasy theme home decor website so think dragons and fairies and mermaids and you know all that fun stuff and that one like google ads c- completely got gutted in in 2022 the cpc's doubled the conversion rates went down it just it just didn't work there was a lot more competition that entered into the field and in there I have not haven't had nearly the growth that I would have wanted. In fact, this holiday season, my sales are down like 30% in in Q4 currently on that. And and so that's, that's, you know, disheartening. But at the same time, all my eggs are in one basket and we did buy... With Fairy Glenn and the quilting business. Fairy Glen's the fantasy themed home decor company. With both those ones, we're bought with the SBA loans. Uh, with the quilting one, we put a lot more money down. So we put, you know, 50% down on that one. And there we have a lot more margins because our cash flow or our cash flow is a lot better because we have less debt. And so I'm able to take that capital, put it back into the quilting company to get that super hyper growth. Whereas with the other one with Fairy Glenn, we leveraged that one to the max. So we put the 10% down. We extended the loan as far out as we could for inventory to get us a capital operating expenses. And there, especially with interest rates going up, you know, there's, I'm able to service the debt on that company, but not much else. I, I'm not getting a paycheck this year. From that company, or if I do, it's going to be really, really small. I'm still able to pay the debt just fine, but you know, it just speaks to hey, if you leverage, there's a cost to that, and the cost ultimately is is growth. Because if I had a lot more inventory on on Fairy Glen, I'd be selling a lot more too. But we're we're out already of a lot of our top sellers, which is really, really sad. You know, late, late Q4, this is where you make money. <laughs> so yeah, so, right. Yep.
0: Now on, on the quilting.com you had mentioned that you tripled sales. Was that if you were to pick like three reasons for that happening? Was it was it product launches? Was it refining the current catalog? What what would you say led to that?
1: It's not quilting.com. I'll stress that. I wish. So so maybe in the future, if you're out there and you own that domain, you're willing to sell it at a reasonable price, please hit me up. But uh, no, it, there there are several things. And a lot of it is when we when we purchase a company, you know, one of the things we look for is where's the win? What value are we bring? To the table where we know we can grow this company and it was already a really good company. The, the woman who started it was a fantastic person who had 30 years of experience in the field, quilt shops and she set up a really, really good business but ultimately she was capped because she could only handle so much. She'd have some part-time people coming in to help her out to ship items out but she was running operations out of her home. Uh, she couldn't keep the items in stock so customer would order it then she'd order it from the manufacturer they'd ship it to her and for us a lot of it was okay well let's start holding more inventory let's build up the inventory and that way we can ship stuff out a lot faster and you know keep at least all the top sellers in stock and and so we did that let's say she mailed out two times a week to her customer list and it it wasn't religiously mailed out because she was like no if i'm too busy then i won't email and it's just like wow and so for us just you know, doing those two emails a week, and we do we do technically two emails, and then every other week we throw another one in there. It's like new products, and then just ensuring that we're pushing out a lot of new products. We're always adding on more product to the website because there's a lot of new patterns that come out weekly, and so we continuously just keep adding more and more product onto the website. Whereas, you know, she didn't religiously do that, but we do. It's part of our process. And then on the marketing end, there wasn't any any big sophistication going on there. And I was able to, to look at the CPCs that other people were paying in that niche cost per click and determine that, oh, we could do really well on the paid marketing end. And so we've been able to set up some very, very successful uh, Google ad campaigns and Facebook campaigns. And and target those towards individuals and all that has been just slowly feeding into growing the business and then along with the repeat customer rate, just fantastic repeat customer rate. Uh, these are fantastic people who buy and there's zero fraud. There's zero fraud in that industry, so you can ship pretty much anywhere in the world. Nobody's trying to steal your quilt patterns for free, <laughs> which is which is awesome.
2: Yeah, that's yeah, that's kind of funny how you how you highlighted there is zero fraud and and that. It comes from experience, I'm sure, that every, you know, a lot of people listening to this uh, podcast has probably experienced, you know, you know, a competitor attacking them or, you know, or, or whatever, who knows. But no, it sounds awesome. And just to reiterate, the company that you're primarily the last several years, you're, you've you been focusing on acquisitions, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so starting about four or four, four plus years ago is where I determined that that because I, I had a lot of success with the acquiring companies when, when I was affiliate, acquiring some affiliate content we- websites. Like the first website I ended up buying, it was for, I want to say like a 16 month revenue. And that oh, wow. one, yeah, yeah. And well, that's what the way it was. You know, if you go back, you know, 12, 14 years, 15 years, it, you know, the multiples were a lot lower. You know, I did fantastic on a number of those. And so, so my thought was, well, let's just buy an existing business. Because startups are hard; They're, they they take a lot of work, a lot of effort, and a lot of time. And if I can cut that in half and just already buy something that's operationally already working, then then utilize my skill sets and my my business partner. His name's Tim. He he's my tech partner. I'll I'll never start another business without a tech partner. That's that's a lesson I learned from a previous startup. And so I was like, I gotta have a tech partner. And so he was, you know, I, I networked with him uh, for over a year. He was a Rhodium member. And he was in a mastermind of mine. I knew him for over a year before we ended up doing a business partnership together. And yeah, that's worked out really, really well. It's a, it's a good model if you know what to look for.
2: Awesome. Looking into 2023, you know, your portfolio of companies, are there a, one or two things that, that you guys are looking to improve on or attack or opportunities? What What does the landscape look like for 23 for growth?
1: Yeah, so we have the existing companies we're, we're going to be able to throw more money at and slowly grow them. As far as the acquisitions go... We're we're not in an acquire or die mode anymore. So so we've reached enough capital and enough earnings to where we don't have to absolutely acquire something or die. And I, I say that because we started a 3PL, so a third-party logistics facility. We bought a warehouse, we store all of our own inventory and we ship out for ourselves. And that operation was negative. You know, when I started that company, I started that one with an SBA loan and I had enough cash in the company to run for 18 months. I had an 18 month run rate. We're now like 20 months into it and just like this this last month, which was the 19th month, right where we were running out of cash, was our first profitable month. And so awesome. so so now we're we're large enough to be able to cover those costs and hopefully we can going forward and so we don't have to acquire a die. One thing I am looking at on the asset purchase end is, is to really take our time and find the right company that's a good fit for our wheelhouse. That might be a you know, a company that's already doing really good, or it might be more of a distressed asset. So, Waiters, for instance, was a little bit more of a distressed asset uh, that we purchased all in cash with a little bit of a seller's note, but it's already almost paid off. You know, we're I'm looking at potentially buying more distressed assets just because the the more I'm seeing how a lot of these e-commerce companies are ran, there's. There, there's a lot of opportunity, especially on ones that are failing, because we already have examples of companies that are successful in what we're doing there. And a lot of those tactics can just be applied to the new ones. And it, it's nothing revolutionary in any way whatsoever. You know, running a business is running a business. It's just, you know, ensuring you have sales and cash flow and and, and manage manage your balance sheet appropriately.
0: Absolutely. So it, as we've gone through this conversation, it's it's become abundantly clear that you're an entrepreneur and you have a lot of uh, experiences within this space. And so I'm curious, what advice would you give to your younger self, say say Jacob at, at 21, just just getting into things?
1: The first thing I'd probably say is, hey, uh, diversify out of organic traffic because uh, because <laughs> Google's going to kill you. But really, it's it, it's more about owning the customer and and then understanding the risks you're taking better. And so so you know, I don't feel I had a good grasp of the risks I was taking. And I fully didn't understand, like, oh no, if I lose Google, I lose everything. That's sadly a lesson that I've had to repeat multiple times, building in other people's sandboxes. They changed their API and now your code is dead. Business is non-operational now. And and just, you know, understanding that a lot better and in really focusing, like I said, on your own customer and building an asset, something that you can actually sell down the road, something that's sellable because then you're actually building equity and and you're actually building something of worth and so you're putting all your time into something that you can then later sell down the road. And so th- that's that's where I would have told a, a young Jacob to focus more on.
2: Excellent I, I like that a lot. The last question I've got here is more on the acquisition piece of it. So as you're like looking, you had mentioned some of the assets that you've acquired were distressed, some of them were decent you know as you're like as you evaluate businesses to buy, what are some things that you're looking at? In terms of like how you can add value, how you can grow them. This may be at a high level, not specifically for you, but maybe a list of you know three to five things that you're that you're looking for to that you can add value.
1: Yeah, for in general, some of the, some of the criteria. And of course, everything's going to change depending upon the price in which the site is selling for. So, you know, waiters, we got that at a fantastic price. Model cars, that again, we got at a really good price. And that one, our clear win for that was the SEO was messed up. So they transferred the site from another site to Shopify. They didn't do like the 301 redirects properly. They didn't do a lot of like really easy stuff. You know, most people in, in the content or e-commerce world would know like, oh, that's a big no-no. And so, you know, we just saw where we could add In our value, but ideally, you know, for if I was looking at a company today to purchase. You know, I'd want them to be, you know, 10 years old, you know, that way they have an established customer list, you know, continual growth. So year over year growth, you know, might be affected there by COVID a little bit, and, you know, operationally it has to be a good fit for us. So it has to be within our wheelhouse, you know, a product or service that we're comfortable promoting and just, you know, clearly identifying what, when do we add to this? Where's the meat on the bone? You know, understanding that, Hey, is it a diversified sales channel? So if somebody's like, I will avoid with the plague, FBA only businesses. I won't touch an FBA business. The reasoning there is because, well, FBA is only Amazon. If Amazon cuts you off, you're dead. And so it comes back to that, you know, understanding your risks. If Amazon says, Jacob, we heard Google hates you. Well, guess what? We hate you now too. Then, then you're done and there's nothing you can do. And Amazon's a big company and they, they won't bat an eye. You hear a lot of those horror stories. So ensuring that's a diversified sales channels. Is it, is it a website? Do they have a customer list that you can email? Does that email list actually, do they purchase? You know, Hey, what's the organic profile look like? Things along those lines and then within that you can take a look at okay, well, they only send out an email once a month. You know, is this something where no, people would appreciate getting emailed every week. Like right there, you could do a lot better in sales. Or, you know, hey, do they not have shopping cart abandonment emails going out or are their product listings very, very vague. And they're not answering basic customer questions coming back to like waiter's website where they don't even have a sizing chart. Pretty obvious things that you can do. You know, if you can find that meat on the bone or where you can add value, amazingly enough, a lot of companies don't even answer the, the phone. You know, some of those can have a drastic increase in sales if you just answer the phone. Because a lot of those people just want to make sure you're legit or they want to place an order over the phone. Model cars, is a great example of that. We did uh, several thousand sales this last year just by answering the phone. It's a
0: big deal. Okay. Yeah. No, excellent. David, any follow up? One more follow-up on the acquisition model. So I know I've got them to the, get the email from the brokers that has a company. It'll give some details, maybe some revenue numbers, which is kind of like their teaser, right? So I, I'm assuming that you receive those. And and I would assume that there's probably, if you see something that piques your interest, there's probably a follow-on request. I want to look under the hood, learn more about this company. So when you are looking under the hood, pre-acquisition, what steps are you taking and what types of information are you asking for?
1: You'll get the prospectus and the prospectus is going to tell you you know, a number of things like how many suppliers do they have so if it's just one supplier well that that's kind of a red flag because what if that supplier cuts you off do you do you have access to another supplier where is it that i could save money or add money you know in my case i have my own 3pl now so if they're paying you know five thousand dollars a month in warehouse costs it's like cha-ching like that's 5 grand that could be going to my 3PL company you know just looking over predominantly yes the prospectus which is going to give you information on how the company is ran, the products that they sell but also understanding the P&L the balance sheet and the cash flow statement with those three things you'll be able to reengineer the true seller discretionary earnings uh, for instance if it's a husband and wife that are running a company and they have no employees they might claim Oh, we have 200,000 seller discretionary earnings. Okay. You got to replace two employees. Like that's not that much money that they're actually doing. So I'm, I'm going to remove, you know, maybe 90,000 off that and recalculate what, what my, my offer would be. And, you know, the, the unfortunate thing is, is the unfortunate now is, you know, multiples are starting to come down again. Interest rates are up multiples are coming down, you know, it's just ensuring you don't overpay. You make your money when you buy. So it's just like in real estate, don't overpay. You know, that's, that's the bigger one and making sure it's within your real house. And that you can add value onto the business. Yeah, of course. There's a lot more you can go into. Like there's there's a ho ho in depth. My due diligence document is I think 40 pages long. So it's <laughs> it, you know 40 page word document. So there's a lot of stuff that I check off and I look at to get that. I built that a lot off of. If anybody's not subscribed to Quiet Light Brokerage emails, they they do the best intake forms. Period. So just request one. For a company, sign up to the list, request one, and and you can see like their prospectus that they give out, which is really really in depth, and that'll get you a lot of understanding of okay, these are really good questions that are asked, and and it gives you a lot of insight into the into the businesses.
2: Anything else we want to cover before we head into the fire round?
1: No, I, I'm good. Let's go. What is your favorite book? My favorite book because I do I do a bit of fiction reading. And I, I, so I'm not even going to give you a business book. It's, it's King Killer Chronicles, and that's uh, Patrick Rutherford. I think I'm saying that name wrong. And so, even if you don't like fantasy, like kings and magic and stuff like that, read it anyways. Get the audiobook. The audiobook is fantastic. King Killer Chronicles, book one, book two, book three will be out someday. I don't know when, but. You, you know, the, it's my favorite book. Um, otherwise, if you're interested in actual acquisitions through buying a business through acquisition, the Harvard uh, Business Review, the Harvard Business Review, buying a small business is a really good read that has a lot of stuff in there as far as doing due diligence and other stuff. That's the book I'd recommend. Even even if you're going to buy something small, it's a really good book to go through.
2: Okay, awesome. What are your hobbies?
1: And so I like, you know, hiking. I do walks. I have a daughter. I like spending t- time with her over. Overall, then uh, I really like investing in general so I read a lot about investments and you know different companies and you know different ways of making money and overall it's kind of kind of what I focus on I'm big currently into the junior mining space it's a it's not an area of investing I would recommend anybody ever go into again it's understanding your risks and your risk tolerance level and you, you have to have a really, really good uh, risk tolerance level to to be able to do that.
2: Did you say crypto mining or?
1: Junior, junior mining. What is so junior think mining? gold mines and gold mines and, and resource sector. So companies that are on like the Canadian TSX exchange. Okay. So so no, like crypto lithium. mining. Yeah, yeah. Crypto <laughs> mining and crypto in general. I, again, I, I was very, very early in that field. I I am the worst crypto investor in the world. When I say I have a lot of failures, it's beyond belief, Like like my experiences in the Crypto world, it's just, just yeah. So I, I avoid it like a, like the plague. I'm a perma bear. It's not to say I don't own anything. It's not to say I don't buy here and there. But uh, I'm a, I'm a perma bear in general. It's, it's largely a solution in search of a problem.
2: <laughs> All right. So, Next question. What is the one thing that you do not miss about working for the man?
1: A lot. You know, the politicking. That, that probably be the biggest thing that really turned me off. Uh, the politicking, and then you know, when you're on your own boss, and and you're actually making a little bit of money. You can outsource the things you hate. And so if you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. You you find somebody else to do it for you.
2: Absolutely. Uh, last one. What do you think sets apart successful e-commerce entrepreneurs from those who give up, fail, or never get started?
1: There's There's a lot there. I'll come back to some of that risk tolerance. Of understanding risk tolerance, not necessarily putting your eggs in all basket, not necessarily going all in. I, I really, really like the chicken entrepreneur approach. You know, don't quit your day job, start something off to the side. And then persistence, knowing that you're going to fail and you're going to have to pivot. That's just the way it is. But you're gaining experience along the way. And as you gain more and more experience, you gain more and more confidence. As you gain more and more confidence, your experience level is going to meet opportunity. And at some point in time, those two will, will meet and you'll have the right experience experience level with the right opportunity and you'll be able to take advantage of that whereas other people won't be able to excellent answers
2: over to you
0: david yeah to close out the show if anyone's interested in getting in touch with you be the best way
1: i I think i might have my linkedin profile in in the show notes hopefully and so really that's it feel free and and reach out to me there say hi so that's probably the best way of getting a hold of me
0: all right sounds great well jacob thank you so much for being a guest on the firing man podcast and looking forward to staying in touch
1: yeah absolutely it was a pleasure being on thank you
0: Before you go, we wanted to share a new service that Ken and I have been using called GetIDa that has made us over $10,000 in Amazon reimbursements. The service requires no monthly subscription and GetIDa collects a small percentage of the money they recover for you. It takes less than 5 minutes to set up and works on all Amazon marketplaces. Go to getida.com, G E T I D A.com and enter promo code FTM400. That's F-T-M for Firing the Man 400 to get your first $400 in reimbursements commission-free. How much money does Amazon owe you?